Jesus and his way has to offer is just exactly this. How do I become the kind of person for whom, even when everything is not okay, everything is still okay? 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 10. I know a person in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that such a person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up into paradise and heard things that are not to be told. That no mortal is permitted to repeat. On behalf of such a one, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. But if I wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think better of me than what is seen in me or heard from me, even considering the exceptional character of the revelations. Therefore, to keep me from being too elevated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So I think next week we'll start a series in Ephesians. I think we're just going to go all the way through the book of Ephesians. Uh, But today we're taking a little detour from our time talking about Samuel, Saul, and David to uh, take a look at this passage from Paul. It'll be short, but it'll pack a punch. So let's just lean in and get to it, yeah? So 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 10. It's an interesting passage, isn't it? It's interesting. It's got some of the most recognizable concepts that we like to use from the Bible. Like, uh, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Yeah? And there's Paul's thorn in his flesh. Uh, there's that notion that God's grace is sufficient. That power is made perfect in weakness. That whenever I am weak, then I am strong. These are all things that we really readily recognize as biblical concepts. And it's got some pretty confusing bits too, right? Like, uh, again, there's Paul's thorn. What was that? There are a number of guesses, but nobody really knows what he's talking about there. (laughs) Paul says, I know a person. Yeah? He's actually talking about himself. Right? He's talking about himself, but not wanting to boast about it. And we'll come back to that a bit later. He says he's caught up in the third heaven. The what? There's more than one? Yeah, actually, according to uh, the Jewish Talmud, uh, which is like an ancient collection of Jewish law and legend, there are actually seven. So that show, Seventh Heaven, didn't, it wasn't too far off. Yeah? <laughs> but did you know that? There's seven heavens in, in, Jewish, in Jewish lore. Uh, Paul says that he's in the third of those seven, uh, which Talmudic tradition, uh, it's called, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but it's like Shehakim or Shehakim, which means skies. Yeah. One tradition says it is to this place that incarnate men can rise during prayer 
and be instructed in the mysteries of creation. Here we are told the great millstones of heaven can be seen slowly turning creation through its great cycles. That sounds neat. Paul's testimony sounds a lot like that, actually, when he says he heard things that are not to be told that no mortal is permitted to repeat. I mean, come on, man. Tell me. (laughs) Please. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds pretty cool. And I'd kind of like to see it. And again, we'll come back to that. Uh, Then there's in the body or out of the body. I do not know. It's like, so on top of all of this, we're adding out-of-body experiences to the mix. I mean, this person, whoever he is, again, it's Paul. uh, he's, He's had some pretty wild spiritual experiences. It's like, man, what are you... I don't know. (laughs) So what in the world is going on here? First of all, I don't know. I don't know. And frankly, I'm not sure anyone really does. This stuff is weird. Let's call it what it is. But I will take a stab at what I think the point is underneath uh, all these confusing bits. Because... Let's be honest, even those bits about weakness are kind of confusing to us modern readers. Have you ever listened to someone talking on the phone and you're only getting one side of the conversation? Yeah? Uh, You try to figure out what's going on on the other end of that phone call. You're like... What am I not hearing? You try to kind of piece together what's going on over there. A lot of times when we're reading Paul's letters, that's exactly what we have to do. Because Paul's answering questions and he's addressing things, but we don't really know what the question was. We kind of have to piece it back together. Uh, But Paul is responding to and instructing these specific people with their specific questions and their specific issues. We have to keep it in mind. We don't have the privilege of knowing exactly what's going on on the other end of this phone call. And so biblical scholars do the best they can uh, to try to piece that back together. In this particular instance, though, we do have the benefit of the chapter before, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in which Paul speaks of false apostles. He even seemingly mockingly calls them super apostles. He says in chapter 11, verses 5 through 6, I think that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may be untrained in speech, but not in knowledge. Certainly in every way and in all things we have made this evident to you. It seems like maybe Paul is responding to some people who are questioning his legitimacy as an apostle of Jesus. Because some other folks have moved in on one of these churches that he's planted, and they are claiming that Paul's revelation is inferior. Yeah? And these super apostles are boasting of some things like lofty spiritual experiences to give them an air of authority over the Corinthian church, and then leading these Christians astray to a different gospel, which was something that Paul explicitly warned them about. This ought to shed some light on Paul's story of someone else being caught up in the third heaven. 
He spends a good portion of chapter 11 saying anything these false apostles apostles can boast of, he can boast of more. And then the loftiest spiritual experience of all, this third heaven experience, he saves for last, like to put a pin in it. Yeah? Whatever these guys can boast about, I can boast more. But, but what? But, he says, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. In other words, none of that matters. Paul says, guys, I can boast all day long, but I won't because that's not the point. That's not the qualifier. That is not where my legitimacy comes from. Inherent in this conversation is a deceptively simple issue, a question, right? The one we're trying to piece back together. How do we know who to follow? We want to please God. We want to know God is on our side, that he's got our backs. Who is speaking for this God and how do we know? In short, the question is this. Where is God manifested? In response to this, and after making it plain enough that the spiritual experiences being boasted of are decidedly not the point nor qualifier, Paul could have pointed to any number of other things to bear witness to his legitimacy as an apostle of Christ. Again, not to discredit or discount those experiences. They're wonderful, lovely things that can strengthen you. But he says that's not the point. He could have pointed to the number of churches that he established. He could have pointed to how many people were following him or the favor that he'd received. He could have pointed to any number of markers of success as we often want to frame or understand the concept. But he doesn't because those would be missing the mark as well. He talks instead about being beaten, imprisoned, being stoned, being flogged nearly to death. Shipwrecks, a number of times, countless uh, dangers and hardships. No, instead of anything else he could have pointed to, Paul points to what? Weakness. See, I think, and I, and I really don't think this is so profound, okay? But I think that everyone really just wants to feel okay. Yeah? Peace. Shalom. Right? The Ingrid Michaelson song back in the day, I just want to be okay, be okay. You ever heard that song? We used to play it on repeat. Have you ever wondered about what you would do with your life if you didn't have to work for a living? Like if you knew that all your needs would be met, if you would genuinely be okay, if you didn't have to fight and strive for every cent and every breath, what would you do with your life for free? What would you devote yourself to? How would you spend your time? I think that's a really fun thought experiment. And you really ought to devote some time to it because it has the potential to reveal what you are truly passionate about. But just as important as your answer to that question are the requirements of your okayness. What would constitute okay for you? What does it take for you to be okay? Have you ever thought about that? 
how would you know you had achieved this elusive status, that feeling of being okay? We all want to be okay, but would we really even know if okay showed up? I don't know. But part of, part of what Jesus and his way has to offer is just exactly this. How do I become the kind of person for whom, even when everything is not okay, everything is still okay? I cannot imagine anything more difficult than that. I have certainly not achieved that point in my own apprenticeship to Jesus. But this is what he offers us. His, Jesus isn't simply the way to having better answers. Yeah? He's not simply the way to having a better life as we often like to imagine it. This isn't simply the way, and this one's important, to get other people to change. The whole point of Jesus and his kingdom spirituality is learning how to transcend my own ego, my own selfishness, my own desires. We've spoken of this concept frequently that the task of our formation into Christlikeness is to modify our desires. Because our desires come from that deepest part of who we are. It's what Jesus is referring to when he says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Yeah? It's what Peter was talking about in Second Peter 1, I think. I don't have this in my notes, but I think it's uh, uh, something like, we are being saved from the corruption that is in the world because of desire. But that's why we're here, right? To learn how to do this. To change, to be changed. We just sang about that in the last song, didn't we? To learn how to be okay. <laughs> to have our hearts, our desires transformed in the image of Christ by the renewing of our minds in this abiding fellowship with the creator and sustainer of the cosmos. An apprenticeship to, the, to Jesus, the okay one. Because he was okay, right? Yeah? In community with other people who are on this path with us, people trying to find that elusive okay. We all want to be okay, to experience God, to be on the right path, and we search and search for signposts that scream to us, this will make you okay, don't we? And here's Paul, fam, none of that matters. It's weakness. We humans we are so desperate to see where God is. I believe that, all of us. Even those of us who don't believe, we're so desperate to see where God is. Because I think we intuitively understand that if we can find him, we will be what? Okay. Yeah? And so we look to pictures that look to us like success and power. The things that we've made gods out of. And we cling to them. Success must be where God is. God must be on their side. I mean, have you seen the car they drive? The house they live in? How many people they've killed in battle? That's a reference to David. <laughs> Clearly God is for them. So we should strive to do like they do. We claim our legitimacy, our okayness, or lack thereof, 
through our vision of success. You catch that? Your okayness is determined by how you understand success. No, Paul says, it's weakness. We do this same thing in churches. Well, they must be doing it right. I mean, they're full, they got plenty of money, everyone's paying attention. And so it's easy to want to do things, again, like everyone else. But it doesn't really work that way with God. Why? Weakness. Weakness. That question, where is God manifested? Let's think about it. When God wanted to put himself on display in the clearest and most tangible way he ever had, what did he do? He showed up as Emmanuel, God with us, as an utterly helpless human infant in the care of a pair of refugees who, broke and exhausted, could only manage a pig's slop trough as a suitable place to lay their child to sleep. Weakness. Yeah? As a young child, misunderstood and forgotten even by his own parents. Weakness. As a man, rejected, beaten, and murdered in the most inhumane way. Weakness. And my friends, that is precisely the story by which the world is saved. Weakness. If you want to see God in this world, you look to the cross. That is where the fullness of God is manifested. God is found as a helpless infant, a misunderstood child, and a rejected and murdered man. This is the kingdom victory, the vision, rather, of victory and success. What we think of as weakness, God calls victory. I know it's so hard to wrap your head around Some of my most profound experiences of God's presence and grace in my life have come in my most intense moments of weakness or despair, whether through the actions of other people or through my own frailty or stupidity. It's in those spaces that I have encountered God the strongest. God active in our weakness is God active in our lives. Yeah. Think about how often you try to connect with God while under distress versus how often you try to connect with God when everything is just grand. Yeah? That stings for me too. (laughs) But he ain't mad about it, right? He knows this better than we know ourselves, as Pastor Larry likes to always say. God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Translated another way, my power finds its end in weakness. In my weakness, I come to the end of myself, right? God's power is made perfect. God's power finds its end when I am at the end of me. Our weakness is where the power of God can be displayed. And it's there and in the weakness of others where we can find God most readily. That is where God is manifested. I'll close with this bit from Isaiah 50, uh, verse 10, from the NIV this time. It says, Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, you might say, Let the one who is not okay trust in the name of the Lord and rely on 
on their God. Amen. You good with that? All right. That's my message for today. Weakness. (laughs) That sucks. (laughs) All right. Let's pray. We'll get you guys out of here. Father, thank you so much for who you are, for being with us in our weakness. Help us, Lord, to look to those spaces all the more, not only in ourselves, but in others. When we can come and be and stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, and even those who are far from you in their weakness, help us to know that that is where we can find you. It's not in all of the lofty spiritual experiences, as awesome and great as those things are, but it is in the suffering of the single mother working two jobs to care for her kids, who is alone, broke. That's where we can find you. Help us to find your peace in our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.